the stupid cancer show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary. I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My name is Kenny Kane, EVP Mission and Chief Ginger Officer at Stupid Cancer. And we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay. It's just not okay. It's just not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Surviving Cancer. There's an app for that. As the world goes mobile and advances in cancer, rely more and more on high-tech solutions. Living with and managing cancer means new solutions for survivors and caregivers. Join us as we discuss the issue with Alex Fair, co-founder and CEO of MedStarter. Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc. Oh, fail. Sorry, Jean. Jean-Luc Neptune, Senior VP of Health 2.0, and Dr. Carly Perry, MCI Program Director, Survivor Spotlight on Paul Berman. Okay, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Stupid Cancer Show as we come to you live. From the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. Self-ingratiating applause beginning. Yeah, that was epic, though. I felt like Jack Bauer. Oh, God. And instead of cutting the red wire, I cut the uh, the green wire, and the uh, the Chemo Deck just blew up. Sorry, Gene Luke. That's all right, no problem. It reminds me of that Star Trek episode where they called him Gene. Well, that's the thing. You know, Star Trek is so popular these days. Yeah. These days, you know, you think it'd be common, but that's all right. But you have a little schwa thing over the A, right, don't you? Nope, nope. No, no. So it doesn't even give any stupid American the indication that it could possibly be pronounced any different. No, it's pretty straightforward. So it's your fault. <laughs> okay, we'll just blame you. That's why sometimes it's just jail. Okay, jail. It makes a lot. That's of fine. Perfect. That's fine. Well, it's a pleasure to have you live in studio tonight, Alex Fair. Hello. Hello. Welcome to our live cave here. Thanks for our having digital me. man cave here on the internet. Looking forward to an engaged conversation um, at the second half of the show. Feel free to chime in anytime you want to just annoy the crap out of Kenny. Yes. And speaking of engaged, welcome Paul Berman. Paul Berman. What a lead in. Good job. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. And we are joined tonight by our lovely Maureen Sweet. Hi, everyone. Hello, my dear. Back from my literal radio silence. Haven't yes. been on in a little while. That's okay. Good to be here. We quite, quite literally. You. Quite literally. Literally. You've been, you've been muffled on the couch. Yes. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> we can't say that on the air. Oh, yes, we can. Moving on. <laughs> so is this the first time the three of you guys have been to this Stupid Cancer Show in studio? No. I was interviewed by Matt back in, what, 2009 when I right. had my uh, clinical trials matching startup which in, was this, in this room. One of the coolest. We, I was going to bring that up. One of the single coolest products uh, that came out of the ideas that came out of, of the uh, what we will be discussing, the digital health revolution, or as uh, we would say in France, the revolution. <laughs> This yes. is actually my first show, my first uh, in-studio in appearance. And you live, like, literally a block away. Uh, I wish. No, I'm actually uh, in Jersey, sadly. Oh, okay. Well, that's 
A river away. River away. It's 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 about like uh, seventeen thousand miles in a rowboat. Uh, at least most people think so, but yeah. it's really just the rowboat. What city? Uh, it's Roselle Park, which Roselle Park people don't even know where Roselle Park is. What's the nearest mall? Short Hills? Mm. Paramus? Short, yeah, Short Hills is probably okay. the closest. That's all I can relate to. That's a good job, though, yeah. for not being from that area. That's pretty good. I just a nice mall. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. That's how I rate myself. The pins in my Google map are based on the malls. The Spencer's in, in Short Hills gives you only the highest-end stupid cancer swag. Right? Nice. Yeah. We, we love our their quality We love people. our sponsors. Yeah. We do yeah. love our sponsors. <laughs> Well, I, hey, I just wanted to talk about three cool things that happened in the last week since the show. Um, apparently, Siddhartha Mukherjee, author of Emperor of O'Maladies, is partnering with documentarian Ken Burns, sponsored by, uh, of all organizations that are coming together around this, American Cancer Society, Stand Up to Cancer, the Entertainment Industry Foundation, Cancer Treatment Center of America, one of our sponsors, uh, and, and Siemens, and NBC, and MasterCard, all these major corporations are coming together to support the next Ken Burns major documentary. He is taking the Siddhartha Mukherjee book, Emperor of All Maladies, and turning it into a six-part documentary for the spring of 2015. So we had the privilege and the pleasure of going to their, um, what would you call it, like a James Lipton-esque kind of... It was Yeah, it was, was an announcement party. event with a little talk back. Yeah. Katie Couric was there. It was a lot of fun. It was super cool. Super cool. So... I think the question that I would have for that is, and they did, Kenny did raise this, is how do we get the average American to watch six-part documentary on cancer when we couldn't get them to watch the one about baseball? Right. And we like baseball. And it was an amazing documentary, and it did very well, but it did better when PBS did it during its drive a year after it was done, that people got it as a gift for donating than watching it live. What's going to get the rest of the country to actually watch six-part documentary on cancer in two years. Hmm. Answer me, Kenny. You can incentivize it with Amazon gift cards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Huge Free that. travel mugs for watching. <laughs> Free stupid cancer shirt. Right, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so that was the biggest question that I had. So I can't wait to watch it. I hope we have an opportunity to contribute to it. I know Sil Lake has been invited mm-hmm. to contribute to it. Um, but uh, I do hope it does take off. It's very exciting. And maybe in two years, There'll be enough hype around it that will get the American public to, to buy into it and listen. And if you need to fill your two years, it's a 600-page Pulitzer Prize winning That's course, right. Which I've started. <laughs> and you'll finish in two years. One page a day. Yeah. You'll finish in time for the documentary. Right. Perfect. Fingers right. crossed. We'll see what happens. And, Maureen, you went to the annual Conference of Cancer and Careers. Yes, I did. I went to their national conference on working cancer this past Friday. Tell us um, all about it. It was a lot of fun. It was my first time going. Um, there were probably, I don't know exactly how many people, so if Rebecca hears me, I apologize. There were probably like 250, 300 people there. Um, and I, got, I went to a bunch of sessions. I learned everything I know about Obamacare, I learned from that. Right. Uh, it was amazing. That's your T-shirt. Incredibly enlightening. Um, don't say that too loud because then you'll have to defend Obamacare to all of the naysayers for like the next however four years at least. But it's highly That's defendable, true. right? You learned a lot. I, well, once I, I you learn about it, it's highly defendable. But yeah, you know, the whole like all the pre-existing condition stuff. It was fascinating. They can't charge me based on my gender. It was a, it was great. I also learned just a lot of things about dealing with cancer in the workplace from every angle, from you know job change to leaving your job to being in your job starting interviewing for new ones it was it was wonderful how about dealing with ceo brain tumor survivors was there any, <laughs> any any breakouts you know i did ask a couple of specific questions and they just were not answered <laughs> his, benefits, to... his benefits come in under uh 2015 uh plans as I, I am jack's pancreas so you, and you also spoke this week or something or something exactly. Gilda's Club here in New York City, great organization here in town, had a um, very small young adult meetup inviting me to come speak to about eight people that came. It was very organic. It was one of those like you sit in a circle, but it wasn't awkward like a hospital kind of circle. And it was really great. It was just good to talk about what I do, my story. A lot of people don't know the details of my story and how, how it took me like forever to start dating and feeling like a person again. I mean, I'm, I'm 39 and married with kids. It's, it's a far gone thought to remember what my life was like from the perspective of who I am today when you're just coming into the young adult world. But I was that 22-year-old that was impotent and infertile and bald and scarred and couldn't walk. And yeah, you know, I was that kid for like three years, and, and I don't miss that kid at all. But that was I part of I don't miss him ch- either. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> miss you either. So. Um, we also have to say happy belated Father's Day to yes. uh, fathers in the room and uh, also in the chat room and listening from afar. Yes, happy belated Father's Day to those uh, we honor and those we uh, 
talk about in memory of. Clearly important. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, I think it is time to bring out our star champion here. I will queue up. If you can guess what movie this is from, you win an extra prize tonight. Uh-uh. I'll give you about five more seconds. Anyway, Paul Berman was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 26 while living in New Jersey, then New Jersey, and working as a software engineer at Motorola. Nearly three years later, he's now newly engaged, working at Verizon, and will be on the survival panel and talk at OMG East in New York City this September. Welcome, Paul Berman. Thank you. The answer was uh, Punky Brewster. We're going for Punky Brewster. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was from Get Shorty. Uh, you know what? I'm so I'm so awful at my classic movies. I would have never gotten that in a million years, sadly. Is Get Shorty really classic? It was like 1998, right? Yeah, I would have thought Blues Brothers more than, more yeah. than Get Shorty. Okay, maybe classic. Elmore Leonard. You can't beat Elmore Leonard. That might Leonard. be a Matt fact, actually. No, but it was actually <laughs> not a Matt fact. It's a real fact. Go to IMDb. Prove me wrong. Mm-hmm. Hi, Paul. How's it going, Matt? Welcome across the river. Thanks. It's great to have you on. I'm surprised we never had you on before. I know it's uh, it, it's a little bit of me uh, 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 humming and hawing about when I'm going to get into the city uh, and take off of work early and uh, and, and just uh, me actually doing it. So I'm glad to be here. Very excited. Uh, here, there was alcohol involved. <laughs> there might there might have been some uh, uh, coaxing about uh, beer afterwards. So, no, yeah. there's always an after party. Uh, good. Yeah. In that case, I'll be here every week. Okay. We're going to have that little uh, that island. They they build the island just to drink on in the beaches. They build the sandbar islands. No, nothing. <laughs> where where are these yeah. islands? I have no idea. Let's get to wah, wah, wah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so Hi, we, Paul. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there's a show here. Yeah. Yes. We we met Paul. Uh, was it Halloween of 2010? That's right. The uh, Halloween. Oh, the fabled Halloween were, party of 2010. You were Fred Flintstone, right? I was for. That's right. And then my wife came. She was the 80s girl. I don't think I met your wife. No, that, that, no, that wasn't that year. Was that a year before? Probably. Oh, okay. Was that your I, first wife? What? <laughs> I was a homeless nonprofit employee. You with were a, with a. Uh, That's right. With a will work jug. Will work for five hundred one three C. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. That was good stuff. Uh, so, how did you find out about us? Uh, so I think, uh, so I was diagnosed in October of 2010 also, and, um, during... So you were like fresh meat then? Absolutely, wow. yeah. Wow, all right. And, and so during, um, uh, during my stay in the hospital, um, a social worker happened to come by, and she, she had all, uh, all the flyers and stuff for I2I back then. So, right. So she, she's like, here you go, you know, um, you know, I know the guy, Matthew Zachary, who does it. He's a, he seems like a cool guy, and it's all about this, uh... Young adults uh, supporting other young adults with cancer. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking for, if you're going to hang out with people or just email him, he's a cool guy to talk to, and he'll actually respond to you, which is uh, which you actually did. And, um, Man, and someone was right about me finally. <laughs> and uh, and you you let me know that there was uh, the Halloween party uh, coming up, and uh, I should drop by, so I did. So what hospital are you at? I was in uh, Morristown Memorial Hospital. Okay, Morristown. Yeah, which is actually, they have a really great oncology center there, which thankfully for me, uh, I ended up in. So so what was your life like before um, all the shit at the van? Uh, things were going really well. I was, you know, so like Kenny said, I was working for Motorola. I, I think I was four years out of college at that point. Um, so doing really well. Um, had, uh, had a plan. I was uh, in school getting my master's. Uh, at the time, and then uh, everything everything kind of came to a crashing halt uh, for for a little bit. And, what were your uh, uh, what were your symptoms? Uh, the symptoms. Uh, so it, it was the typical uh, uh, symptoms that you don't realize are symptoms kind of stuff. So it's um, it's like night sweats and uh, horrible coughing that went on for months. And um, I lost 20 pounds and had no idea I lost 20 pounds. Uh, loss of appetite, uh, chills. And then finally, what actually uh, did it in for me was I, I, I um, my right lung had collapsed without, you know, oblivious to me. I was, I was in the middle of bowling with, uh, with a friend of mine. Bowling can do that. I've, you know, it, it only took about 15 years for it to catch up to me. But yeah, finally, the the old bowling collapse lung. <laughs> um, I think uh, that they make they make a support thing for that. Yeah, I have I have a brace now. It's called BCL trauma disease. <laughs> Right. Can be, no, I, the, the, I can imagine the the, um, the pharma advertisement for it. Do you have BCL? <laughs> Is your are your lanes glossed enough? Do not use BCL support if you <laughs> if if you have been treated with any of the following. If you've had munchies before bowling, please do not have BCL. Oh boy. 
So, uh, so I, I happened to be bowling with my friend, and uh, uh, and I was huffing and puffing uh, in between every ball I threw, which uh, you know I, I alluded I had been doing it for I think 15 years. You know, I've been bowling since I was a kid, and uh, all of a sudden the the huffing and puffing started. I'm like, this is just something's weird here, and um, so that was over the, over a weekend, and then that Monday I went to I went to a doctor. Uh, it was a it was actually my second trip to a um, to a PCP and and finally she uh, the second one realized that hey something's weird here she had, luckily for me she had an oncology background so she was like oh so you, uh, tell me about all these other symptoms right right so she realized that I had all these symptoms and my resting rate was 120 and then there was no there was no um, uh, bre- there was no sounds of uh, of air in my right lung and she's like well you should get an X-ray or something <laughs> something <laughs> yeah. So uh, she she like rushed me somewhere to uh, get an X-ray, and then uh, uh, the next day I think I had to get rushed to a hospital to get the the actual CT scan. And they're like, yeah, we're not gonna let you go um, because, <laughs> because we see this really massive uh, uh, thing wrapped around your heart. So um, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fit you in. We're we're, we're making you an emergency surgery uh, today. So Slow we're, we're gonna fit you in. Yeah. yeah, where do you think you're going? <laughs> so that probably scared the crap out of you. Uh, the scariest part, I think, was uh, just after leaving the uh, the primary care office that first day, and um, getting after having gotten the X-ray, and uh, that was there was a rush on the results for that. And she calls me back and says, "I don't want to alarm you, but you know this might be cancer." <laughs> oh boy! And you know, I, I take everything with kind of like a grain of salt. That's how I get through everything. Everything's a joke. So um, at first, it was <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, but, then, but then the gravity set in for a little bit, and I, I realized it was kind of uh, it's kind of a big deal. But uh, luckily, that that faded. I was back to joking uh, the next day. So. I had a moment when I was when they finally discovered that I had the brain tumor in my head. I for about an hour I was so happy because what was wrong with me that no one really understood made sense now. I was like, thank God there's something wrong with me because for six months I was told. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just hypochondriacal or whatever. Or the brain tumor finally did that to you. Yeah, the brain tumor finally. So I'm like, thank God there's a brain tumor. I'm not crazy. Oh, shit, there's a brain tumor. <laughs> what do I do now? So you, you had your uh, comical uh, um, di- uh, misdiagnosis story, uh, which, yeah. which I'm sure a lot of the listeners know. So my I, mine isn't uh, quite as comical, sadly, but uh, I, I did actually go to a um, to the first primary care physician when I, uh, when I first had the cough, and I realized that uh, you know, it wasn't going away. And um, so I go in. I'm like, you know, I have I have this cough. It's really bad. And um, I mean, normally I'm sick for a while, uh, so you know, I don't really think much of it. But you know, it's already been like a month and a half. And I also have these like throbbing neck veins, and and you know, that's definitely that definitely doesn't look good. And, you know, kind of like hulking out here without the green. And uh, you know, so like what's going on? He he, he looked me over, and he's just kind of uh, fig- figuring out you know how I sound and all that. And uh, he gave me a, chiropr- a chiropractic adjustment. And, uh, and he's like, uh, well, I don't, yeah, I don't see anything uh, really wrong with you. So uh, if the cough doesn't go away for in, in like another uh, week or so, you know, just uh, just come back. And I'm like, uh, really? I, I don't, are you licensed to even do that? <laughs> so uh, so that was when I decided it was time to seek someone else uh, the, the the second time. That's my new band, Chiropractic for Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and so how? So you went through treatment. And yep. uh, you found the organization, and yep. you've been to the past three OMG summits. Yeah, I've been to, to I've been to every OMG since uh, since my diagnosis. So um, April of 2011 through through this past year. Were you on the the monsoon booze cruise? I was. Oh that, my! That, that was where Kenny and I first bonded in his uh, while he was wearing his uh, yeah, his I garbage have... bag <laughs> of, of, a, of a rain repellent. There's a photo of that somewhere. <laughs> That's a good picture. That's a good cruise. For those out there, that not, was so great. For those out there who don't know what we're talking about, in 2011, the OMG Cancer Summit here in New York, we held a, a booze cruise after party, and we just happened to have like the entire nation of Thailand's weather descend upon the United States here in New York City. And uh, maybe thirty thousand gallons of water fell per second and flooded the city. And we were strike. And this, this was this. Um, the boat was leaving from one of the docks. There were no subways near the docks. There were no buses near the docks. You have to walk to the docks. It was truly rain or shine. It was horrible, but we had fun. Once on and the boat, was, there, everyone dried off and got. There, there, there were definitely some over unders on when the boat would capsize. Yes. Uh, so, somehow it didn't. There, no. there was a lot of uh, uh, shaking going on, uh, was, but we didn't know what, if there were bedrooms on the, on the ship. <laughs> it was rough seas. Yeah. yeah. I mean, stuff like that can happen sometimes. But see, you weathered that, and you're, you're fine. Yeah. 
So what's your what's your follow up? What's your you know we talk about anxiety and fear of recurrence and late effects and stuff like that. What's going on with that? Yeah, uh, luckily you know like I said, so I'm, I'm I kind of joke about everything. So I I, I guess kind of in the back of my head is always like the the fear that it is going to come back at some point or or maybe down the road um, because of how. Uh, severe the original cancer was that you know the tree I, so I had six rounds of ABVD chemo and then uh, a full month of radiation so there's always there's always kind of like in the back of my head that well I had so much radiation done and all you know it's such a bulky tumor initially maybe it's going to mutate into something else down the road but your scans are clean now You're, yeah uh, no two, evidence two and a half disease. years yeah two and a half years uh, of of uh, you know so far uh, uh, you know cancer free as they as they say but you know it never it's never really ends you know, it's always a six month follow up do they talk to you about like long term effects of radiation at the heart um not really they they kind of if i remember correctly and you know maybe it's chemo brain but uh if i remember correctly they they mainly said you know you'll you'll have like a lot of redness you'll have a lot of uh itchiness and maybe you know uh, some irritation and stuff but nothing uh, uh nothing really long lasting from from the radiation how many days of radiation uh i guess I guess it was 20, uh, 20 to 25 or something like that. Did they put you in that little, like, plastic cask that you had to lay down on, or was it all standing up? No, it was, no, it was, it was laying down, uh, but I had these, like, handles behind my head that I had to grasp onto in order oh, okay. for them to kind of access the chestal area. Yeah, the form the chestal? Chestal. Yeah, yeah, the form of the, the TSA, uh, <laughs> yeah, TSA t- hello. T- yeah. Take the new TSA uh, uh, position, right? Exactly. Well, and are you athletic? Uh, I am. I, uh, I I was actually a lot more athletic uh, uh, back then before uh, I had to put all that stuff on hold. But uh, yeah, always a gym rat, a snowboarder, a bowler, uh, football, baseball. Clearly, bowling is in the same category as uh, snowboarding. Oh yeah, it's a very uh, high risk, high you know <laughs> reward sport. Lots of gravity in both sports. Yeah, which is clearly why you see so much, uh, so many people on TV that are bowlers in in such magnificent shape and drinking and smoking. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm going to go with snowboard bowling should be your career. That's I'm inventing that sport. Okay. Take it easy there. That's my other new band name. S- snowboard snowboard bowlers. bowlers. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So you're a tech nerd. You're a geek. Um, so, yep. you, you belong here, clearly, with, with Kenny and I. And we're slowly geekizing Maureen as we get ever more down the rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. But uh, how has technology in any way aided you through your uh, healthcare navigation? Oh, man. Or has it at all? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, for one thing, I got to learn more about you guys, uh, and it's probably how I, I, I wouldn't be so involved with stupid cancer if I if I wasn't able to, you know, find out more about you guys through Google or through your website or through the blogs and and, and stuff like that. But even, you know, like you were saying, just uh, uh, my healthcare in general, I, I feel like I got to learn more about. You know, everyone's now a doctor at home. They they read up on their own diagnoses and and whatever they whatever ailments they may or may not actually have. Um, so, you know, I did some reading up on Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was first diagnosed and um, the side effects of ABVD chemo. Is it okay to get ABVD? What are my fertility options? Right. What, you know, how is the radiation going to affect me? And sadly, a lot of this was post facto because they kind of rushed me into chemo um, once they discovered what it was. But, you know, nonetheless... Well, the reason I ask is sort of like as a precursor to the second half of the show because we we have two experts here in the digital health world, and they're working within an industry that's trying to really innovate how patients engage with their own health during and after trauma and treatment. And uh, you're almost like you know a live patient panel expert here to give them live feedback for these ideas because there's a lot of great stuff out there, but the patients really don't know about it. A lot of the patients don't know about yeah. it. And and this would, this would be great, too, to be able to have the kind of uh, healthcare um, research and stuff at your fingertips that, uh, you know, maybe even even when I was diagnosed, we didn't really have, like, I, I think they'll, they'll talk, Jean-Luc and Alice will talk about more later, like the uh, apps for, for healthcare and for, you know, kind of self-help and, and stuff like that. I think that's, uh, you know, going to be great for, for future patients later on. So as an app developer yourself, do you really do you believe that that there will be adoption one day, not on the, not maybe on the level of Facebook, but will there be adoption for apps in healthcare? Oh, absolutely. Uh it's really what it'll come down to is really um the the caliber of people who are writing the apps uh and the material that they have to go on because it's it's easy to get an app developer and it's easy to get someone who's an expert in cancer and healthcare, but you know, to to end up uh, meshing the two together really well is what's is where 
you know, the the bottleneck probably is right now, I think. And you know, just getting the good information and getting getting something that's that's going to, going to be useful to most consumers of the app and and also something that is, you know, they'll be able to come up with pretty easily and like push out uh uh with with uh, regularity and updates and and stuff that people can actually you know tangible stuff that people can actually use like that'll be great. So what do you think was missing from your experience that you wish you had? Uh, well, answer faster. And I'd be curious specific to um, your diagnosis. Yeah, specific to being a twenty-something guy and ho- with Hodgkin's. Well, specific to to my situation, I, I was rushed into chemo, so I was I was. Admitted to a hospital on a Wednesday, and I was um, officially diagnosed with Hodgkin's on a Saturday. But they're like, "Okay, well, we need to wait for the biopsy results to come back. That won't be till Monday." But as soon as that comes back, I'm, I'm about 95% sure you have Hodgkin's. So once I get that confirmation from the biopsy results, you know, we're going to start you right away on chemo. I'm like, "Well, what about fertility? And what what about you know if you know side effects and all this stuff? I have to research and you know, I have all these options I have to look into." We don't have time for that. <laughs> really? Uh, there's, yeah, you kind of have to make time for that. And but you know, I was a little naive uh, back back then. I I didn't that's really. Not naive. Know. That's proactive. Well, no. Uh, what I was saying is, I'm I was naive in the sense that I actually just went along with the doctor and said, well, okay, you got to rush me into chemo. It's kind of like a, he he kept impressing the fact that it was a life or death thing if I didn't get the chemo right away. So um, I I pretty much rushed into the chemo and and didn't get. It. Uh, as much time to look into the fertility stuff as I really needed, but um, you know, from from all the other stuff I've read, and this goes back to I guess the technology and doing stuff online question. Um, all the stuff I've read about uh, ABVD chemo is hopefully uh, short-term side effects. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll see if I'm in the clear later on in the future. All right. Well, you look great. Thanks. You hate that when people say that? Oh, of course, yeah. because it's so patronizing. <laughs> it is so patronizing. Yeah. There, so anyway, so part of we talked about the informalities. The 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 goal being we'd like Americans to get a little more educated and a little less ignorant. A is that even possible? Because Americans just want to watch, you know, the Kardashians. And two, cancer is something that even though it's kind of out in the open and we can talk about it now, it's something people still don't really want to understand. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I. I, I, it's funny how many people I still go up to. And, and in fact, I'll tell, I'll tell you a story. I was out in San Francisco on uh, uh, on business uh, for the Google I/O convention. Go nerds! Um, nice. And uh, while while I was out there, I was I was doing some shopping for for people. And I, I there happened to be some flea market out on the uh, across the street from the port building. And um, as I'm going through, I see all these handmade ceramic mugs, and a, a lot of them had like. Uh, cancer stains on them, like, uh, uh, and one that I ended up buying was, uh, uh, "Hey, cancer, fuck you," or you know, uh, something like that. So um, I, I went over to the guy who was actually selling them. He said, "Yeah, I make these." Also, I'm like, "What? What possessed you to, to make these uh, these cancer mugs?" And he would tell me his cancer story. But he's he was an older guy, like some, uh, I guess, in his fifties, mid fifties, maybe. And I was telling him my story. And he's like, "Really? You had cancer?" Um, and it's still it, like that kind of reaction yeah. is really what like what you still poor gets thing. Me. You're so young, and what, yeah. Well, not just that, but just the just the general um, misinformation that that there uh, people our age get cancer, and that right. a lot of the a lot of I don't know if it's like an older generational thing, maybe, or it's just like people who aren't in the field just don't realize that there's still there's still a lot of uh, uh, you know. Um, Non-information or less informed people who just don't right. realize that there are young adults that get cancer. So I think you know it, 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 there's a lot to be done. I think to inform people that there's still you know there's this whole group of people of us, and I think you said what seventy-two thousand. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's incredible that people aren't aware, and I'm hoping that you know this the documentary would would help. But again, how do we get people to watch it? We have to put some sex in there, or uh, yeah. <laughs> or like. Hey, tits, cancer. Oh, man. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, so we're going to wrap, and we'll keep you on for the rest of the show, but this was great. My my last thought was when um, when I launched I'm Too Young for This back in 2007, a month later the New York Times did a blog, did an article about it called Too Young for This, Young Adults with Cancer. And it was, one of the, it was the year that the New York Times allowed live comments 
they launched live comments like January 1st, and this is one of the articles that first had live comments with embedded hyperlinks. It was a big deal in 2007, the New York Times. So they actually linked to the website, and they had open comments. And the first comment, I wish I took a screenshot of it, the first comment was, I didn't know a 21-year-old could get cancer. Yeah. That was the first comment. It's literally etched in my brain forever. Yeah. But that's what we're trying to and and even years later, we still need to break that stigma that it does happen. And, right. And, uh, you know, we need to find other methods of doing it. Well, thank you, Paul Berman. Thanks, Matt. You have been a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful guest. Kenny and I can hit up the news here real quick. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All righty, Kenny. All right, Matt, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something can be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Matt, we have meetups happening in St. Louis and North Carolina. St. Louis, huh? Uh, yes. Is that our first one there? No, it's the uh, second one. Nice. Very nice. Oh, is that the Paymasters? Yes, partnering with uh, Hope for Young Adults with Cancer. Fantastic. Yep. Good, good luck, guys. All right, the Stupid Cancer Forums have almost 5,000 members. This is a premier online cancer community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit Stupid cancerforums.org and sign up with Facebook. Matt, I don't know if you've been there lately, but the Stupid Cancer Store has a brand new layout. Actually, you you did because you gave me some OCD feedback about yes, it. Yes, my OCD it feedback. has scores of awesome products for sale. As mentioned on the site, it's up 100% awesome. Wear Stupid Cancer, be proud. Stupidcancerstore.org. And that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. All righty. Now it's time for the big guns. You can guess what movie this is from. You get a prize, too. Jean-Luc Deptune is a physician, entrepreneur, and executive with extensive health technology innovation experience, combining a unique mix of clinical, business, and technology expertise. Alex Fair is a white guy. No, I'm kidding. Alex Fair is an innovation leader, ex-scientist, executive public speaker, business developer. He's the curator of MedStarter. And Dr. Carly Parry is very smart. Uh, she's a PhD MSW. She's a program director of the Process of Care Research Branch of the Behavioral Research Program of the National Cancer Institute. Say that ten times fast. Please welcome Carly, Alex, and Jean-Luc. Carly, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having us. Thank you for tweeting us. <laughs> I was so impressed. Like, the government's tweeting us. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? It's super exciting. I'm going to add that to my, my lapel pin list. I've been tweeted at by the government. Well, they're already watching us and listening to our conversations. They might as well start tweeting us. Got it. If the NCI is watching me, I'm scared of that. I don't care about the NSA. The NCI, what are they watching me for? <laughs> well, anyway, I'm really, really excited that we got, were able to put the show together. It's been a while since we've discussed digital apps, digital health, and just what it is, how it's evolved over the last seven years since its inception, and um, I guess I'd just like to start with, with, with JL. You're a doctor. Um, you have a, were you a practicing uh, physician, or what is your doctorate in? Sure. So I, I went to uh, Columbia for medical school, and I did a residency in internal medicine at uh, Presbyterian Hospital, so saw a lot of uh, oncology patients when I was there. And uh, I'm a licensed physician. I passed my boards, but uh, after I finished my residency, I went and I got an MBA and have been doing uh, business-related stuff that touches health care in some way, shape, or form since then. So what inspired you to not go into practice? Uh, well, you know, it was part of my plan from early on. I was always interested in taking care of patients and doing research, but I was also very interested in this big industry that is healthcare, uh, a very big and complex industry, and over the last couple of years have developed uh, the interest in the digital part of it and all of the interesting things that we're doing with technology to help patients. And one of the, I, I think one of the things that makes me sort of unique in the space is that I, I still have the classical academic training that says you have to go directly to uh, chemotherapy right now and you can't stop for a moment moment, as well as sort of this new digital world, this patient advocacy and empowerment world, and I, I get an opportunity to straddle both, and I can sometimes help people understand why doctors are saying what they're saying and also help the doctors understand what the patients are saying, and, and we'll discuss this in a, in a little while, but that's a big theme in what we're seeing in app development these days. It's not so much uh, people developing apps on their own and just de developing apps for the sake of them, but working uh, in tandem, hand-in-hand -hand with patient groups to develop uh, apps that solve real problems that patients are, are facing. Now, Alex, you've been at this game for a while, but you are an ex-scientist? Yeah, sure. Uh, I started as a physicist, and um, and then I noticed everybody in my family is dying of cancer. And um, 
so I, I switched uh, tracks, went into uh, oncology and, and then pathology, and then uh, about three and a half years in, uh, my uh, my mentor, uh, you know, had decided that he was uh, not going to be in science anymore, so I was going to uh, have to find a new mentor. So I said, let me start a company, and so I created an evidence-based medicine app. Uh, back, it was back in 1996. It was in an app. It was an application. <laughs> an app, and, uh, the other and, half of that word. Was it, was it a dot exe? <laughs> <laughs> Not even. They built it on Paradox, if you remember that. Uh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm old. Yeah. Me too. Anyway, so so uh, yeah, and, and um, you know that took off and got bought by a big company, and so MedStarter is my seventh, and uh, it's. Uh, it's a, it's I think it's the the end run around uh, traditional approaches to getting found and funded faster. So, well, and and I'm I've always been very impressed with your work. I think MedStarter is a, is a good a quintessential example of of great thinking, not done in a bubble. So I I, I give you credit for that. And and Carly, uh, I feel like calling you Dr. Perry only because I feel so uh, so academically inferior to you. You Please have so many credentials. <laughs> Um, you uh, you have a doctorate in so- joint doctorate as if one's not enough in social work and sociology from Michigan Go Blue. Maureen's impressed that I knew Go Blue. <laughs> Go Buckeyes, sorry, I'm from Ohio. <laughs> and uh, you know, I-, I would love to learn more about how the NCI has started to take a more active role adopting 21st century philosophies on on solving issues that may not necessarily be directly clinical. Absolutely, and I will mention, since you asked the others too, that I got into this work because my mother is a 17-year cancer survivor, and that was the genesis of my entry into this before all the doctorates. And the work at NCI, the body of evidence that we're working to develop is on survivorship care planning. And as this audience is well aware, there's an increasing number of cancer survivors that's growing quickly, and many survivors are at risk for or are already living with late and long-term effects of cancer in their treatment. We've seen medical after effects, like social after effects, social after effects, And there's been growing concern about how do we best deliver follow-up care to address survivors' ongoing needs, with the recognition that there can be difficulties coordinating follow-up care for this population, especially at the end of treatment transition. In 2006, the Institute of Medicine came out with a report that recommended survivorship care plans as one potential mechanism to support better communication and coordination of care at end of treatment. But there hasn't been a lot of consensus on how best to generate or deliver care plans and if they're even effective in helping survivors get their follow-up care needs met. And this is what led to this innovation. We needed to understand how best do we use technology to develop and implement survivorship care plans and care planning interventions, and how do we assure that these care plans are created to be meaningful living documents that will be useful to survivors and to care providers. And one of the ways to move forward, one of the ways to move forward in our understanding is through challenges like the one that we're discussing tonight. Well, I'm a closet anthropologist, and I, I've been, as a cancer patient, a cancer survivor, a cancer caregiver, um, as, a, uh, as a, a musician and a nonprofit guy and um, someone who is a bit of a tech nerd as well, I've, I've watched the last 18 years truly innovate and change the way patients engage with their own health. I'm excited about this the, the development of this field only because the word survivorship you can't have a survivor care plan until people understand the word survivorship and that word didn't even exist until 19 until 19, uh, 1986 it was invented but it wasn't really a publicly digestible term until 2005 when the national action plan for cancer survivorship came out but even still here we are almost 9 years later 8 years later and getting adoption from patients to understand that even, I mean, we, we, we get angry at the general public who don't, don't understand that when the doctor says, you're cured, you're home, that's not the end of the story. But being able to articulate that across multi-generational levels of engagement with patients around the country, how do, what are the biggest barriers then? Because we know it has to be done. We know it works. We know there are clinics around the country that have this and it's productive. Uh, Dr. Perry, what do you see as the the biggest barriers? The barriers to to actually implementing uh, true standards uh, for survivor care plans. You know, the challenge are at the moment we don't really have an evidence base that tells us exactly what is the best content. There are recommendations that need to be tested, and that's the science that we're promoting at the moment. But we don't understand the best way to do it, and we don't yet understand exactly what survivors need to have in them and what will be useful to the whole variety of stakeholders who need to be using these care plans. 
which is providers, it might be insurers, it might be survivors, it might be family members, all of the above. And the platforms might need to look a little bit different for each of those populations as they're accessing and using it, right? So that's one of the issues. And then we have some challenges with interoperability between systems and healthcare delivery systems with the electronic platforms and technology that's out there at the moment. There's some challenges with getting information from point A to point B, let alone having the conversations around the information that's in there. Yeah, it's kind of like everyone should have USB instead of we have like a thousand different cables to to work try to work together. Jean-Luc, um, there is no more influential, no greater influential private sector effort in the digital health revolution than Health 2.0. I'd love you to talk about its origins. What does the 2.0 really mean, and what does it do, and how has it been effective in in changing the conversation over the last seven years? Sure. So uh, Health 2.0 is a company founded in 2007, uh, founded in San Francisco, but now really a global company, although still a small company. And, uh, you know, the, the, the term Health 2.0 comes from Web 2.0. So if you remember back in 2007 when everybody's on Facebook, people are starting to use Twitter, there's this notion that the Internet is changing, right, and that there's this new Web 2.0. And uh, the founders of the company, Matthew Holt and Indu Subaya, looked at the Web 2.0 world and realized that much of what we were seeing in the Web 2.0 world was becoming applicable in the Health 2.0 world. Uh, you know, people were starting to use Facebook to try to communicate with their doctors. Uh, people were starting to blog about their cancers. People were using Twitter uh, to network with other cancer patients. And you were really starting to see a change in how patients experience their disease, and you were starting to see a change in how providers also interact with patients. So that thus was born the at least the, the kernel of the idea for Health 2.0. And Health 2.0 was born as a conference company, still best known as a conference company, and puts on a series of conferences in the United States and internationally. Uh, our big conferences in uh, in the fall and September in uh, San Francisco. Uh, but we also do a couple of other things, and one of those things that we do is the uh, is the innovation competition business that I run. So it's called the Health 2.0 Developer Challenge, and uh, we have a team that's based here in New York, and we run innovation competitions on behalf of organizations like Aetna, Walgreens, Novartis, uh, the NCI, other aspects of the federal government. And what we do is we run little uh, mini competitions or I shouldn't say little competitions, or little mini X prizes, if you're familiar with the X prize, sure. right, where a sponsor will offer up prize. Many of our prizes for a competition might be $50,000 or $100,000 uh, to build something that solves a problem that somebody's interested in. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've been working with the NCI. This is actually our second project that we've done with the NCI. And uh, the point of the competition that we've been working on called Crowds Care for Cancer is for teams of technologists, developers, and, you know, they can be people who write code, people who design products, people who develop technology in some other way, like Paul, uh, to build applications that allow patients to transition from from being cancer survivors in which they're getting lots of in-close care from specialists and moving more into the primary care world and dealing with the fact that now they're not maybe going to be as monitored as closely, but they still have to think about late effects, long-term effects. They have to think about monitoring, and they have to make a whole bunch of decisions. And uh, although I, I do not fit your definition of young, I'm 42 now, I am a young uh, cancer caregiver at this point right now, and I can tell you it's really, really challenging even within the uh, the, the specialty care environment to take care of somebody who is who is sick with cancer. Right. And uh, it gets really hard once that person comes out of that specialty world where there are lots of eyes on them to the primary care world. So uh, we've been running this competition. We've had a lot of excitement, and Alex will talk a little bit about it as well. So, Alex, what has it been like to see the government get involved in the XPRIZE philosophy in digital health for you? Yeah, it's, it's really a gratifying thing to see the government get involved like this. I mean, what, do you, what better use of taxpayer money to be decided by the actual crowd who cares about it most, right? So typically uh, NIH grants and things like this that I used to write, uh, they're decided upon by groups of scientists. So if you didn't send it to the right group of scientists, then it wouldn't necessarily get funded. So, uh, or sometimes by executives at companies. So most of the most of the actual deciding of the $100 billion or so that's spent on healthcare innovation in any given year is decided by executives and scientists and people like this, which they're really knowledgeable, but at the end of the day, it doesn't actually get out to market and doesn't necessarily serve the actual taxpayer who's paying for a lot of it, right? directly through paying for the medicines or for or through paying for um, paying your taxes. So when when uh, HHS uh, and NCI in particular came to us and said we want we'd really love to run a challenge and really get your crowd involved because one of the things that MedStart has been able to do is to translate health duo solutions 
And just a little background, I run Health 2.0 New York City, which is a chapter, one of 66, I believe, jail? Uh, something like that, yeah. Uh, chapters around the world. We're the first one, I believe, uh, first one outside of San Francisco. And, we've and got, the best one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, we've got 3,000 members of people like me and JL and you guys, um, and it's it's an amazing community. And one of the things that I saw as an entrepreneur in the community and, you know, one of the leaders um, was that, that – you could get a great idea, you could build it, you could think that you had it right, you could talk to one doctor, talk to ten patients, but at the end of the day, you didn't know that it was going to get adopted, and you didn't know that it was going to be used and loved and utilized. So the crowd, when they come into an app, to an application on or a project on MedStarter, they're going to tell you pretty directly, right, because they're going to buy it or they're going to not buy it. And so you get that, you get that adoption curve, uh, you figure it out very quickly. Um, you figure out your business model and all sorts of things. So when NCI came to us and said, we would like to run a challenge that has a crowdfunding component to see which one people really love and which ones they're going to adopt and which ones they're going to work with, um, that was very inspiring to me. And I, I just loved the, the fact that they wanted to work with us. Well, what, it speaks to me interestingly because I remember when Stand Up the Cancer first launched, no one really quite knew how it was going to be any different than any other large cauldron of money going to something. But they were really able to truly define how their, their their differential model, and the traditional model. And, and jail, you probably know this is research. You chase the money. You know you have to do the research where the money says you have to do the research. They really flipped it on its head and basically said, "This is the research we want to get done. Come do this research." And they brought together groups of doctors and brilliant scientists to to basically say, "These are the topics we basically think." make the most sense. So instead of you having to search for where the next dollar is, here's where the next dollar is and join these teams. And they were actually able to get past the whole ownership of published rights and the territoriality to get your CMEs and accreditation and blew the model away. And they've raised like $300 million since 2008 to do that. This speaks to me in that language where you're actually asking the people what they want instead of building silos and thinking. And that leads me to my question, which is about adoption. How do we get adoption? I'll turn it back to Dr. Perry because clearly she brought it up. The elephant in the room is no one uses all USB cables. <laughs> How do we move forward with the issue of adoption is your question? Yes. Wow, and I'm supposed to have solved that? In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> Well, this challenge is one way to move forward in that, to get creative minds thinking quickly and moving into practice, as was just said a moment ago. And there are a variety of approaches to, to moving forward and thinking about that. One of them is, are we going to see some exciting applications here that get past some of the interoperability problems that survivors can adopt and work with on their own that might be readily available and able to intersect with electronic medical records? These are some of the challenges, but just getting the word out there, too, is really important. Understanding that survivorship care planning is an important issue we need to be working on and tackling this is critical. And so this joint effort with the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and NCI is really a way for developers and researchers and innovators to think about new information management tools and applications that can help survivors manage their health and health care and let survivors get in on this design as well. This, this challenge includes a co-design requirement in which designers are asked to get for feedback from users of the tools. So this is a place that patients and survivors can help solve this problem too. So in a free market economy where everyone is, has great ideas and is launching their next digital health you know, venture-funded interest, uh, how do we get standards? How are, or what is the goal? Is the sorry? Is the role of the government in some way to wrangle a lot of these very intelligent, well thought out startups to start thinking more along the lines of of uh, standards? We're hoping to prompt people towards innovation, then be also be thinking about the evidence base. You know, we are promoting science in this area as well, and we're hoping to promote collaboration between researchers and innovators to move forward from this next step. So, all right, so let's talk more about, I guess to turn back to Alex, let's turn, talk about this NCI-funded uh, innovation challenge. What are the topics that the public got to choose from? Well, so so what we what we we asked the innovator community to do was to to come up with ideas that would would help uh, survivorship uh, go on and um, and pe help people interact with their care planners and providers and to come up with ways that would uh, make that easier and and faster and better 
And um, so we actually had 30 amazing applications uh, for this challenge, which I, I believe is, is about three times more than we expected. Um, and um, and there's some really amazing things among those applications. I mean, I looked at a, a bunch of the applications, but I worked directly with the three uh, finalists. Um, Dr. Michelle Longmire created this beautiful application called Together, built on a platform called Metable, which is really about big data and how big data can can help um, you can help apps uh, be better. Um, and you can find all of these, uh, incidentally, at uh, medsoda.com front slash crowdscare. Uh, so, and then uh, a, a activated patient engineer uh, who had already had a great successful startup and sold it, his wife uh, got sick, and he decided to create uh, Patients with Power, so a true patient empowerment app. And it fits exactly with what you were trying to do, Paul, what you would have wanted at that moment when you get that diagnosis, you need an immediate uh, answer of, of what what are here's the criteria that are important to me, what's the best care plan according to guidelines and established uh, uh, data that's out there. And a third one uh, called uh, Journey, uh, my care plan by a company called uh, Journey Forward um, is really, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. They've actually been around for a while, but now they want to go to that next level. They've been making care plans that doctors and patients have been using for a long time up to version 4.1 of their application, and now they want to make it into an app kind of thing. So what is the adoption? of? Are these still betas, or are these out there in the app stores? Are people downloading them? Well, we said this is like a fire up your napkins kind of moment. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's like... I like that. I like that expression. Yeah, well, I mean, we want people to live healthily ever after, right? So we wanted ways that would that would be new and novel. And, and what I thought was really beautiful about what NCI and ONC uh, wanted to do was that they wanted to see something. They said that there's a problem that exists for 14 million Americans, and there's no solution. So let's get something that that works for people, and let's get the people involved in what it is. So that's what, what Carly's talking about is with the co-design element. And if you look actually on the projects on MedStar, you see a lot of comments. I think one of them has at least 27 comments just about that particular uh, just that, about that particular app. Um, so it's really it's great because you have people saying, oh, yeah, I like this. Not a lot of people saying I don't like this because, you know, you get that, you get that um, the first mover advantage of everybody loves the idea of something being there. And so you're not getting a lot of critical feedback yet, which is good. I right. Guess. I mean, but I guess they're on the right track. I know with the Together app, I mean, I, I look at the way it's designed, and I just think, I mean, I, I shouldn't play favorites, but um, but I just I love the design of that. But you know, the guidelines uh, of of uh, patients with power and just the idea of patients with power, uh, that's very important. Dr. Perry, what role does the National Comprehensive Cancer uh, Network play? with its guidelines for survivorship in these survivor care guidelines models you're trying to build? Well, the guidelines that are out there at the moment, as I mentioned, in 2006 the Institute of Medicine came out with a set of guidelines about what they thought might be recommended elements of the survivorship care plan. And then the ACOS Commission on Cancer also came out, um, which is an accreditation body, and said that survivorship care plans should be in place in accredited institutions by January of 2015. NCCN has also talked about survivorship care plans and wanting to be in place um, so there's a lot of movement at the moment behind saying, let's get these in place, let's do it soon, we think this is a good idea. And so the question now is more needing to see the evidence and needing to see how best to put them in place. So there's a lot of momentum behind accreditation bodies at the moment, and what we want to see is how to do it. All right, so that brings me to my the elephant in the room, which is one size fits all, probably not. And I'll go back to my first date with Health 2 was actually at their inaugural conference in September, uh, in the fall of, uh, of 2006 or 2007, uh, in San Francisco, and I was invited. I had no nonprofit. I was just a guy. I was the pianist. I gave a concert there, and I made a comment, an ERSAT's comment, which is basically kind of the obvious, which is that the average American who is in need of this navigation through mobile or, or online is usually techn technologically averse to adopting platforms that, that their kids don't tell them they should trust. But yet they're, the, they, they are, uh, the usability and the experience of using the apps is incredibly adoptable, but by a generation that doesn't necessarily need them. And that kind of got me kicked out of hell, too, <laughs> for a few years by saying that, because no one really wanted to hear it, but I was just being honest. What is, the, is there a larger strategy for a one-size-fits-all for survivor care plans or digital health apps? And maybe, JL, you can talk about that. 
Sure. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, most people who are developing apps, well, I'll back up on that. I'll say maybe not everybody developing apps understands that you have different users and different use cases and that those different users and use cases have special requirements, right, that need to be customized for each user. Uh, as I was saying before, what we're trying to do with, pro uh, with projects like this is help people understand that there are these different populations, right? So there's the 20-something guy who gets diagnosed with Hodgkin's. There's the 70-something-year-old guy who gets diagnosed with a brain tumor. There are very different populations that have different needs, that have different experiences with technology, and you have to design for them. Um, I can say, you know, living in the space day in, day out, that we talk a lot about technology, but it feels like every day we're talking more and more about UI and UX. Right. And Wait, which stands for? Uh, user interface and user experience. Right. Um, and realizing that you could have the best technology in the world if the, hum if the interface between the user and the machine is, is suboptimal, nobody's going to use it. Right. And I would argue that any great technology, and I, I'm looking at a MacBook right here, um, in my view, there is a lot of cool stuff going on behind the scenes, but at the end of the day, it's a really easy thing to use. And I'm looking at Alex, who has an old <laughs> PC here. I used to be a PC. Also known as a brick. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be a PC guy, but I moved to, to Mac in large part because even though I was very technical, this is a much easier machine to use. It's a much better experience. And, I, you know, you... you Kenny has one here. You will actually see people rubbing their Macs, right? And they have, <laughs> they have the, there's the, there's an emotional attachment that you have to great technology. Yes. And I think we're we're moving in that direction. Right. There's still a lot of room to grow. Alex's laptop could get hit by a car. <laughs> Is this an intervention? <laughs> Seriously, I just broke my. It's like that tough AC. book we yeah. see, you know, in the advertisements that you could take it to like the Antarctica, it, it, have it freeze and run over and eat mauled by bears, and it still works. Right. Well, be, sorry, Alex. I'm an Android guy. I'll defend you. Well, World War Z is coming out soon, so that's that's, okay. that's going to survive. That's going to survive. That, yeah, that and cockroaches <laughs> will survive in the aftermath. So, so Dr. Perry, in terms of um, the, the government's projections or future role, what is your expectation or hopes for this competition? We hope to see a lot of feedback, um, especially we hope this audience will be inspired to help us find solutions with the challenge and to give feedback on what are the best apps that are out there and move this forward. Um, it's going to be going now for about another month. I can let Jean-Luc and Alex speak about that a little bit more before finalists are decided. And then we'd like to see some collaboration coming off this, perhaps, perhaps between developers, researchers, other innovators, um, to keep moving forward and developing the evidence base and moving these into practice, that adoption that you're talking about. JL, do you want to go into that a little more? Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty simple. If you'd like to learn more, you can go uh, to the site that Alex mentioned. You can also come to our, our site, www.health2challenge.org. Uh, we have that challenge, and we have a bunch of others uh, going on as well. But, uh, you know, we launched the challenge in May. Uh, we announced the, the finalists that Alex mentioned at the Health Data Palooza that happened in June. Um, we are currently giving um, those three finalists exposure on Alex's platform. Um, and the end of the crowdfunding phase is July 5th. Uh, we're going uh, – after the teams get um, – uh, feedback from the crowd. Um, they will actually submit working prototypes. So they go from, you know, uh, ideas on a napkin to an actual idea that they have to submit. The deadline for that is uh, July 12th, and then we'll be announcing the grand prize winner uh, about a month after that. So if you had to go back, got about three or four minutes left. If you had to go back in time in 2007, what would you want to say to the industry back then that they just didn't know they needed to know? 2000, that healthcare is a different beast. And that there are a lot of people who envisioned a Facebook future for healthcare and don't necessarily understand how complex the healthcare industry is, how big it is, how hidebound it is by tradition, by culture, by regulations, and that you know you can't just get frustrated because not everybody's on Facebook and Twitter and changing the healthcare world. Uh, and I, I, I've seen that uh, in the sort of almost boom and bust of, of enthusiasm. Maybe it's the hype cycle or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think that there's no question that we're moving in a direction where we're using technology to help cancer survivors, help people live better lives, and you can't give up. You just have to realize, you know, how is the system structured, understand people's incentives. I'm a big incentives guy, and looking at, you know, what drives behavior and then trying to understand how you can drive change given the incentives that people face and how the system is structured. Alex, your thoughts on that? I, you know, I have a simpler answer. I would just say, listen to your customers. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I actually walked around New York City. And I knocked on 2,500 doctors' doors, and, and I got 100 of them to sign up for my thing called Faircare MD, which is still out there. But I didn't get any pay for it. Um, so if if they're not saying yes, I will pay you for that, 
okay, you're not really getting real adoption. Right. So you can fool yourself, you know, for four months walking around, you know, New York City. But, you know, if nobody's paying you, then it doesn't make any sense. Dr. Perry, what role do you think the nonprofit patient advocate world has to play in the uh, private sector industry you're working in? Wow, that's a tough question. What role does the advocacy world have to play in the private sector? Well, the advocacy world can inform what's happening in the private sector by weighing in. It's exactly this question Alex is bringing up of listening, you know, being able to make sure those voices are out there and driving these kind of technologies so they actually meet survivors' needs, and then really helping us move towards applications and innovations that are also evidence-based. Those would be the two directions that I think they can really help with. Jail, do you have any thoughts on the, the role? I mean, has Health2 worked with any nonprofit organizations in the past? Um, good question. Um, I, I know we've had a lot of uh, patients involved in the conference, more so especially in the last year or two. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I think patients, the patient groups bring with them their experience and their desire to help people bring, build things that are actually useful to them, right? And I think that there's, you know, the, the, the frustrations that I talked about before about people developing technology that doesn't really solve a problem has brought about this collaboration. So we see a lot of patient involvement. I can say for sure that the federal government is very interested in patient involvement, and there's been a big focus uh, at uh, one of the big uh, operating divisions at HHS around uh, the consumer and consumerism, and uh, I think, you know, you see it reflected in the products that actually get built. Because to the best of my knowledge, just going back seven years, the only real nonprofit that I remember actually entering the space was Livestrong because they had the iPad app for navigation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that is at this point with adoption or how it, if it has done anything good for the industry itself or if it has helped patients or if it just became another one of those, like, boom and bust dead-end apps. Well, I mean, I, I think especially if, uh, you know, Livestrong put something out, I'm sure it was at least seen or exposed. Many thousands or maybe even millions of people were exposed to it. Right. But in terms of, uh, you know, technology that is broadly diffused across, you know, every patient group, I don't think we've seen that yet. I don't think we've right. seen that killer app, that killer technology yet. Sure. Uh, we're actually sure. No one's really looking for it in this in this uh, space either. I think that's one of the real problems also. Who A lot of people, I don't think, expect to go to your app store and say, oh, let me look for an app that's going to help me with my diagnosis or help me, you know, know the next steps or who to contact. Like, I think that's part of the problem here also. We need to make people aware that now you can you can actually go looking for apps like this and that they, they exist and you can kind of help yourself now. You can uh, you can also be part of the creation process. You can code develop and you yeah. can make them exist. I mean, we've had thousands of people adopt new ideas through MedStarter in the last year, and you know that's making a difference. And, and big partners coming to play too. Also, nonprofit partners like Cancer 101 uh, coming through. And actually, two out of the three of the projects here are actually enabled by Sarah Krug. Also created the Empowered Patient Panel here in New York, and then brought it to the national stage. Also, uh, SPM, Society for Participatory yeah. Medicine, yeah. I hope, is, is this new juggernaut of thought leadership, and I hope it can play a serious role. Yeah, it's a, they're a very important part of the conversation. And if you look at actually the, the projects that are doing well in MedStarter, about half the ones that have done well are started by patients. Crohn's disease warrior patrol is just a patient who got really upset about his Crohn's disease, and now he helps other patients. Sarah Kucharski from BFMD Chat did sure. great. She was one of our first success stories. Yep. And, you know, it always uh, – Regina Holiday, of course. You know, well, she's fantastic. a rock star, yeah. yeah. She's actually – she's just finishing up her walking gallery film project. She raised $12,000. Was that with the suspenders or the suitcase or the suits or something? What was that? <laughs> the walking gallery? It's the jacket. The jacket. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. But, yeah, uh, I, I kind of owe her one of that. I, yeah. I dropped the ball on that one. I owe her a jacket picture. Absolutely. Well, no, she makes the picture. You just give her the jacket. Okay. I, mean, I actually sketched out my entire jacket for her. She completely ignored it. Nice. Yeah. Well, we are out of time, but this has been the first of what I hope to be several of these uh, amazing radio shows about uh, the future. We we didn't touch clinical trials, and I really want to talk about Halogica and the, the lessons learned from that, but I commit to another show this fall with you guys. Paul, what are your thoughts as an app developer, survivor, after hearing all this? I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think uh, so Alex is right on the money. Like it, patients, uh, patients are definitely a huge part of this. They know what they're looking for. They know what they want, and they know how they want to see it laid out in, in the apps. I think it's going to play a huge role just figuring out the right content that we want to put in there and, and how it looks. Like, and, and Jean-Luc uh, talked about it also. Like, Apple became successful because they knew how to present very sophisticated technology and make it simple to use and make it easy to use. And that's really where a lot of the technological challenges will come from in getting wide adoption and making sure that you have something that's really 
diverse and it's stuff that people are going to really clamor for and that they really need, but also is easy to use. And uh, also, like you said, um, very wide appeal of audience because I don't know what 70-year-olds are looking to use uh, their uh, cancer app on their iPhones, but uh, uh, if, if there are some, then hopefully we're developing for them as well. But that's, that's really, like, you have to hit on all those things to get that adoption. Well said. Well said. Dr. Power, any final uh, final thoughts? No, I'd just really like to thank you for having us on here today to talk about this and for your excitement about the idea and survivorship care planning. This is good stuff. I'd like to thank everyone for coming on the show. Um, all right, so it is uh, Jean-Luc Neptune, Alex Fair, Dr. Carly Perry, and Paul Berman. Thank you. Thank you. It's always good to have live in studio. We well, had to clean up the office a little bit. Yeah, we had a vacuum. Thank you for making us work. All right, well, with that said, it is now time for our closing sequence. Here we go, folks. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's our show, number 269. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. All right, once again, we'd like to thank our guests, live in studio, Paul Berman, Jean-Luc Neptune, Alex Fair, and live from the NCI, Dr. Carly Perry. All right, man, next week's show, TSCA Toxic Substances Control Act of 1976, about 10 years before I uh, came into this world. Of the 80,000 known man-made chemicals in our food, air, water, cars, homes, and everything else, only a handful are regulated for human safety. This is not okay. Join us as we welcome survivor journalist Emily Cousins from the Natural, National Resource Defense Council and Lindsay Dahl, Deputy Director at Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families, for a quote-unquote healthy debate about challenges faced in updating this law. Also, a jolly dagra in the Survivor Spotlight. Thank you, Kenny. If you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives anytime at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next week live at 8 p.m. See you guys Good night, next folks. week.